we often lament about our students' lack of critical thinking skills. If we take the time to dig into what we mean, we often come up with vastly differing perspectives on even what critical thinking skills are. On today's episode, Tina Reimers helps us define the term and truly start developing our students' critical thinking skills. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm pleased today to welcome Tina Reimers, and she's the Curriculum Teaching and Learning Specialist in the Center for Innovation and Excellence in Learning at Vancouver Island University. Welcome, Tina. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I was pleased to be introduced to you by a past guest, and I'm excited about today's topic because it's so important to our work, such an important skill. And I'm also happy to be talking to someone who works in a center that's focused on teaching and learning. I'd love to hear a bit about how did you first get involved and interested in that part of higher ed, and also maybe specifically about critical thinking. In graduate school, actually, when I was at UNC Chapel Hill, we had excellent training as teachers. I was teaching in the language department there in the French. And um, then I also got noticed that the way they had a teaching and learning center and got connected with them and started working there as a graduate student, working on teaching and learning with other graduate students. So very early on, I noticed this as a path that I was really interested in toward um, bettering student learning and that Uh, eventually through various hops and skips through life became my profession to work in (laughs) faculty development. And so I got interested because my very early teaching experiences were informed by actually really good teaching practices and very careful training of me as a teacher. I know that that's fairly rare actually for university faculty to get such good training. And so I saw that as fascinating. When I got sort of more interested in critical thinking was when I also started teaching great books courses and history of ideas and noticed how difficult it was for students to to take a survey course and get anything out of it and, and or read a text and get anything more than the words on the page. And I started thinking about, well, how how does one get students to actually do the thinking that I'm expecting in my discipline, students to do when they're analyzing a text? And that got me started down this whole idea of what does critical thinking mean? What does it mean in a discipline? What does it mean to me? Uh, what does it mean to students? And so that's where it all started. One of the things we talked about over email and over the phone is just if you get a group of faculty together, you can pretty quickly get them to agree that our students aren't thinking critically enough and and how important that is and what a travesty it is, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you ask the question, well, what do we mean when we say critical thinking? That's where things start to have a lot less agreement, right? 
Yeah, both agreement and disagreement, interestingly enough. Um, but when, when we have a discussion about what does critical thinking mean, we end up um, and put that sort of on posters on the sides of the wall just for everybody to look at. It is such a complex set of ideas that people bring to the table about what critical thinking means. And part of the reasons it's uh, complex is that um, thinking is different in different disciplines. Um, there is a style and a format of thinking in the sciences and a way of approaching a problem that is somewhat different from the arts and humanities, that is somewhat different from if you're teaching the trades. Different disciplines take different avenues toward critical thinking and have slightly different definitions of it. And then we all bring our own personal definitions to the table on what critical thinking is as well. So it becomes this big mass of really interesting stuff that is very hard to define in a sentence. Now, what's difficult about that is when um, faculty start operationalizing this sort of cloud of ideas in the classroom, the difficulty is how to do that. What is the concrete way that I am going to get my students to think critically in the specific way that I am thinking mm -hmm. about critical thinking? And if everybody even were to operationalize that, um, the students have five classes a semester and they're walking from one definition to the next definition in the space of a few minutes and have to perform these different styles of critical thinking that we wish them to have. So between our not having formulated it very clearly for ourselves, not having told our students what it is we mean by it, but trying to operationalize it in our classes, our students are faced with this bewildering array of things that happen to them in their classes. And then we say, oh, but they can't think critically. What's wrong with them? And that is something that I work on with our faculty and with faculty when I do workshops start thinking about what is it you mean about critical thinking? What is it you mean in your discipline about critical thinking? And what does that mean students have to do in the classroom? And what do you need to tell students about that in the classroom so that they understand where you're going? One of the lenses that I know you use is a taxonomy of sorts, although you definitely want us to have right up front that this is in big, bold letters. This is going to be some of the critical thinking theories. And as you've already started to allude to, there's much more than the ones we're going to tackle today. And there's also much more than the handout that you've provided that has some of these laid out. So I'm just going to mention real quick, anyone that's listening, you'll be able to download the handout that Tina has provided. It's going to be at teachinginhighered.com slash 37, because this is the 37th episode. And she's got this for us. And then also links to anything else that we talk about will be at that location too. So if you're more of a visual person, what we're looking at now is a chart that has the taxonomy of, of four different models across the top that we'll be walking through. And then we look at some of the big thinkers and some of the big concepts in each one of these. So you'll have that to be able to download as a future reference. Are we ready to start diving into some of these these different yes, models. and I'm so glad that you um, did that caveat. There are limitations of any taxonomy because it, a taxonomy is designed to um, simplify complexity so you can digest things better. And so some of the folks that I'm mentioning today would protest that they fit into several categories. Uh, mm -hmm. and, but I have sort of tried to make it digestible, and that is a nice tool for me to think about what is the array of possibilities in critical thinking theory for me to use. 
Well, it's a wonderful so, tool. I, I absolutely loved having it and it's going to be a fun one to have as a resource. Let's start with the first one of developmental. What, what gets emphasized in the developmental view? Well, um, the folks that sort of think about critical thinking as a developmental process are people who say there are um, stages or phases that people go through as they mature intellectually, and um, they go from sort of a more simplistic idea of there's truth and there's not truth, and my job is to go get the truth, and uh, everything is kind of black and white, and two, all the way up to a very sophisticated idea of reality as a uh, contextual structure that um, includes human relations, that includes differing perceptions and and ideas, and that one has to sort of figure out what is the evidence for an idea? What is the context of an idea? How does a concept connect to other concepts? So, so, and everything in between, okay? And so um, the idea here, when it, I call them developmental, the idea here is that people think of these as phases that you go through as you mature intellectually. And sort of some of the top people who um, work in this area or have worked in this area are, are William Perry, who talked about dualism and multiplism and commitment and relativism. Um, Belenke et al. sort of updated that work by adding women's ways of knowing, adding um, the perspective of women. William Perry worked in Harvard at a time where there were really only men there, and so Belenke et al. really updated that. Um, we also have a more recent study in King and Kitchener out of the University of Michigan that uh, did a very similar kind of process of following students along and finding out how they mature intellectually. And Susan Walcott does a really interesting way of dividing up what the different phases look like. Uh, the main idea is we develop intellectually over time as we get more sophisticated about our area of knowledge. I was listening to this past week, the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, and they look at policy in higher ed. And they were talking about, actually, it may not have been this last week, so sorry if I'm, I'm a little off on my timing, but they were talking about the competency-based learning models. And that's mm-hmm. one of the arguments they were having a debate on there, one of the arguments about, well, with competency-based learning, it might shrink the time that it took someone to get a degree. And people that assert more of a developmental model, I think, might argue, but that time is necessary in order to go through some of these phases. And if we if we shrink it too much, we're, we're missing out on opportunities to raise critical thinking. Well, indeed, um, critical thinking is not something you can apply like, you know, peanut butter on bread. <laughs> this is not this is not something that you just do to students. And after a semester, they're done and they're critical thinkers. This is um, a complicated way of thinking about the world that takes time to develop and experience to develop. And so I agree with you that people who talk about the developmental process are going to say this is a a lifetime that we Mm -hmm. learn this in. This is not a semester we learn this in. This is something that takes lots of time and practice to do right. The next one are the learning styles, bio-neurological models of thought. Tell us about this one. Okay, so this um, uh, this group, I've included David Culp, James Zoll, and Jerome Bruner in this group. It's a sort of strange collection of people for, peop- uh, for most people who study education and so forth. Um, it mixes <laughs> a strange group of people. Anyway, the reason I put them sort of in a group is that 
these are folks who decided to think about, well, how does the brain work and how, how, not just the brain itself, but how does learning go through a phase from experience through reflection on experience to uh, new actions that are derived from that experience? And David Culp um, sort of made that nice little circle. James Zoll noticed that that is actually how the brain also functions, that concrete experience leads to action, to reflection on action, to new actions, and so forth. Some people have um, resisted this idea of Zoll and said he simplified things, but actually he's very useful in thinking about this um, circle of concrete experience leading to action, leading to reflection that David Culp was working on as well. And Jerome um, Bruner takes a slightly different trail there, but he's talking about modes of thought that are sort of biologically, uh, in early Jerome Bruner, talks about uh, biologically controlled modes of thought that that are about um, making stories and um, having the concrete experience create a story in your mind that you can then reflect upon and act upon. And so there's a certain circular place here where people are talking about learning styles, they're talking about um, bioneurological connections to how human beings learn in the first place. And when I say learning styles, a lot of people are saying, oh, she's talking about learning styles, that's all been thrown out. Yes, of course, learning styles are not a category, a way of categorizing people, but there are learning preferences. And what these people talk about is more, how do humans learn? What is actually built into us in how we perceive the world and bring it into our experience and act on it. I'm so glad you brought up the concerns that have been risen around learning styles. I mean, I can remember way back when I first started in corporate training, that was what we'd learn, whether it was you learn some people are visual learners, some people are kinesthetic learners, some people are are audio audio learners. And and so there there was that framework and it there's actually an article I'll post in the show notes from, I believe it was Wired Magazine, but if it's not, I'll find the, the right one where I saw it. But it's becoming more mainstream now, the fact that there just isn't peer-reviewed research to back up these these well, ways we... The we, thing is that it had it had enormous persuasive power because it, it seemed intuitively obvious that there are preferences for learning and that people don't all learn the same way. And so people jumped on this idea that there are these kinds of learners. There, there's still some value there in mm-hmm. terms of thinking about people do have preferences for learning, but there is nobody who only learns through their eyes. That doesn't exist. There's <laughs> nobody who only learns through their ears. That, that's where I think people started saying, well, wait a minute, this is a little nutty. <laughs> we all learn through all of our senses. We learn orally, we learn through our ears, we learn through our eyes, we learn through writing, we learn through a lot of different ways. We just have preferences for one or the other, and we need to stretch ourselves beyond our preferences so that we can learn most effectively. And uh, when you think about learning styles that way, they make a little bit more sense than when you're trying to make these categories of people which don't exist. This email list that I belong to, you probably do too, the POD list Mm serve. I think that's where I was seeing just the... Was that where it exploded in the last few he weeks? did, yeah. <laughs> All these people, I wanted to jump on that. It was actually quite informative. I tucked that email away for with all the string of it. So the next one is right. cat- categories of cognitive skills. What gets emphasized in this view? 
Well, this is where um, most faculty start, actually. When they start thinking about critical thinking, they start thinking about what are the different levels of thinking that I am looking for. Um, I want them to go beyond just knowing something and regurgitating it for me. I want them to be able to analyze it. I want them to be able to pull different concepts together and make some sense, more more complex sense of things. And um, so Benjamin Bloom is definitely in this category, and um, he is... Uh, somebody I think most faculty are now aware of. Even 10 years ago, that was quite different. I find that fascinating. In the last 10 years, Benjamin Bloom has really become something that is run-of-the-mill. Everybody knows about him because his classification, his categories of cognitive skills are very useful to think about how do I move my students from regurgitation of information and facts to a more complex idea of synthesizing concepts and figuring out how they fit together and evaluating arguments and coming up with evidence for arguments. So Diane Halpern has always uh, has also worked in this area and she just cuts it a little bit differently and make and has clarified a few of the differences between the different levels. And Dee Fink has worked in this in his book on significant learning, which uh, what I really like about Dee Fink's aspect um, on this is that he has added sort of the integration and human dimension and caring parts to it. A lot of times the categories of cognitive skill um, uh, club or group or whatever um, are thinking about it purely intellectually. You know, how can I get my students to go from this low level of thinking to this high level of thinking? And do you think added in the affective piece, the human connection piece that is very much part of thinking and learning and um, and being in the world. And so, uh, again, a lot of these people would say, but wait a minute, we didn't just do categories, we also talked developmentally, and that's, again, my, my taxonomy thins them down to something much more simple than they really are, but they really are useful in terms of the way they categorize cognitive skills and gives us give us targets for how we might enact that in the classroom. The last category is processes of self in culture and society, who are some of the big thinkers here and, and what gets emphasized? You know, I would um, I would definitely mention Richard Paul and Linda Elder here. Um, I also want to mention Donald Schoen and Stephen Brookfield. The idea here, and, and one of the things in my, ca- in my taxonomy when everybody gets to see it is that Dewey, good old Dewey, runs through all of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I put him sort of on the developmental and on the processes of self and culture and society side. The idea here is that as I am learning, as I am figuring out how to get more complex in my thinking, it is, everything has a context. And everything that I believe has a, must have a reason for believing, but also has a cultural context, has a societal context. I come from somewhere, as do the people I'm talking to. And so trying to figure out where do I fit in terms of how I will act in the world and how I will be in society and how, who I am in myself in relation to society um, is part of becoming a whole human being who can think critically about their place in the world and about how to make the world better. Um, and it has emotional sides, it has rational sides, it has definite reflective sides that we have to sit down and think, how, how am I in the world? Why am I thinking the way I'm thinking? And if I do something, what are the results of that on other people? And why does that matter? And so the, the prophecy of self and culture and society group, there are people who say the high end of thinking 
is an integrated human being, someone who can be in the world in productive ways by reflecting on their actions and thinking about them. And so you see, some people think about critical thinking theories as if they were all discrete and different from one another. And Mm -hmm. what I've tried to do with this taxonomy is say, I can draw from all of these very useful things for thinking about what my definition of critical thinking is and how I might start doing it. Do you have a definition that is just ready ready to go for yourself? And I know that you said oh, it varies. Erg. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry you asked me that question because I don't have a definition that I can put in a sentence. Yeah. But I do have strategies for implementing things that will get you to a variety of these places. Ah. My definition actually includes parts of all of these. I think the categories of cognitive skills give you targets to use in the classroom. The developmental model allows you to recognize students in their development as they go from first time when they're freshmen and they want the facts from you, they want you, the teacher, to tell them the truth and they want the right answer on the test and that's all they want. I don't have to be angry about that anymore because they're being stupid. I can now say, ah, I get it. You are in a certain phase of intellectual development. Let me see how I can help you out of that. So, um, And understanding how we are all human and how our brains function to collect information and perceptions, to make them into actions, to reflect upon them, understanding how the bioneurological piece fits into that helps me work on categories of cognitive skills, on helping students through their developmental phases. And all of that aims at this idea of we want to make citizens of the world. When we treat our students in our classes a certain way, we should always be thinking, what are they going to be carrying out of this place 10 years from now that they can apply in the world, that they can carry with them, that will make them better citizens? And so to me, lots of words, that's my definition, that it is all of these things, but they, in the taxonomy, give me tools to reach that last citizen. It reminds me so much of studying instructional design. And I, yes. it, it would be fun for me to actually put together a taxonomy. I should challenge myself to do that. I'm sure others have done it too. But just the idea that you can draw from all these different experts and, and throughout decades, really, of, of the study of instructional design. And then as you start to apply it, yes, it's, it's both an art and a science at the same time. And, and you're able to both in the pre-planning for classes and, and constructing it, but then also in the moment, as you described, you're with that student, they're struggling. And instead of getting angry, I can draw from this and find the richness of an explanation for why they might be behaving like a confused fact finder, as an example. And that brings some clarity in that very moment in more spontaneous way. So that's, that's really helpful as you describe it. It, it actually is a, it, it reminds me a lot of that. Well, let's talk then. You said you have some suggestions then to people who say, I know I want to increase critical thinking and they're kind of more on the coming up with what their own definition is for themselves and also in their discipline. They want to draw from some of this. How could we get started? My first suggestion is invert the classroom. And what I mean by that, um, so these days we're hearing a lot about flipping the classroom. That is one way to go, but uh, most people don't actually invert the classroom when they flip the classroom. What I'm meaning here is invert the classroom room intellectually. Give the students practice 
in situations of ambiguity and uncertainty. The thing is that experts in a discipline, research, are always researchers, are always sorting through either too much or too little information to make their best guesses about how the world works in their whatever the questions are that they work in in their discipline, and then they test those guesses. And that is how knowledge is made, okay? So when we think at a very high level in our disciplines, what we are doing is sorting through all of this information and making decisions about what is extraneous information, what is good information, what is information we can use, and discovering the gaps in the information where we just don't know anything at all. And that is the shape of thinking in a discipline. The same shape of thinking has to happen in the classroom. So when I say invert the classroom, I say give students something to work on during the classroom hour while you've got them face-to-face or online. Give them something to work on that they do not have adequate tools to answer. They have to sort through too much information. They have to sort through not enough information and make assumptions and then test their assumptions. When we start with theory, We are doing the students a grave disservice. We are doing it out of the goodness of our hearts. We're doing it because we want them to understand and we want them not to go down little rabbit holes that are taking them in the wrong direction. The problem is that's not how disciplinary thinking works. Rabbit holes are part of thinking. Oh, that didn't work? Huh, got to try it again. Let's see if this will work. Oh, that did work. Hmm, Let's compare those two ways of doing things and see why the first one didn't work and the second one did work. That's disciplinary thinking. And we don't give our students any time to do the practice at a lower level of that shape of thinking. Give them stuff they can't do. Make them muddle it. Make them do this in class, in groups, together, and accept any answer that they come up with and discuss all of those answers before you get to theory, before you get to the quote-unquote right answer. Um, that was a <laughs> tirade. <laughs> oh, I loved it. No, I, you know that I teach in business, and so the, of course we can study business and we can assign probabilities, but one of the things is when you're, we were looking in class the other day at a startup business, and so many of them end up failing. And it was so delightful to me to have the students, <laughs> this is such a su- funny thing to say, they left very confused and a little frustrated. And I was so excited. <laughs> I had a couple, yes. of, couple of the students come up to me and they said, that was really hard and I'm confused. And I said, well, let's think back because we actually got to listen to a story of a guy who's starting up a business. I said, did he sound confused? She said, oh yeah. And I said, well, remember when he talked to his wife and they're concerned about their finances and how much they're going to have to risk to do this and how much are they willing to risk? Does he seem like he has all the answers? And that's kind of what it's like in the business world. Then the external environment can change. Something can happen that's completely outside of your control. And that's what business is about is a lot of this ambiguity. So I'm actually excited that you're frustrated and confused because welcome to the world of business. Exactly. The the confusion and frustration is part of the learning process. And Mm -hmm. when we clean it up, and give students this perfect picture of our disciplines, there is no way for them into it. It just looks like a block of cement that is completely finished and they can't get into it. Mm-hmm. If we give them muddles, if we give them problems that they can't solve and tell them you have to solve them though, you have to try, that is going to help. And there are um, actually ways of doing this that are structured, that help students through it because they are structured um, and and. So student frustration is good. Mm-hmm. There has comes a time where student frustration leads to giving up, and you can't yeah. go that far, <laughs> right? 
One of the models, I think, uh, is to be found in Michelson's uh, team-based learning. And I don't mean the whole, I will be talking about the whole team-based learning in a little bit, but he has a model for team task design that is really good for any discipline that you can do. And the idea here is that um, you have students in teams, and we can talk about teams later more if we want to, and you give each team a significant problem to work on. And when I say significant problem, nothing easy, something hard, something that is a place where students stumble in the conceptual framework that you're trying to teach them. Give them a significant problem to work on. Have them work on it as a group and have, give the same problem to all the groups in the class. As they are working on the problem, give them a limited set of choices as right answers. And so this sounds like a multiple choice test. It looks just like a multiple choice test. But what it is, is that you give them a number of limited options to pick from and you ask them which is the best answer to this problem. And they have to figure through why all these four or five or things are or are not the best answer to the problem. They choose whichever one. And then you ask them to report simultaneously, either by voting on little um, cards or, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, E. But the simultaneous report in class is really important. You've had now the groups work on the same problem. It's a significant problem, and they've had to choose a specific choice. They vote. And now you have a picture. You can do this with clickers, or you can do this with just with little cards in class. You have a picture of the class and what the different student groups think about the problem. You're going to have five different answers in the room. Great. Now you just say, okay, who said D? People who said D, why did you say D? Who said A? People who said A, why did you say A? And you let them give all their reasons and you never tell them which one's correct. You just let them give their reasons and lead a discussion that shows that some answers have better evidence for them than other answers so that the right answer arises out of the discussion and not out of the teacher's mouth. It sounds like, too, that we're able to show them that there isn't right-wrong in much of our disciplines. There are, there's maybe better. <laughs> exactly, because a discipline that has completely finished answering all the questions is not a discipline. That's where astrology went. They answered all the questions and then they died. Hmm. Okay, now we have astronomy. That's different. We don't have any answers in astronomy. We have only questions in astronomy. <laughs> so we have a situation where disciplines are full of no answers. That's the point of a discipline. Students don't know that the way we teach it. For those of us who have been working on building critical thinking skills for a while, what are some next steps for people that, that can take it to the next level? The two things I would say is uh, one of them is flipping the classroom making sure that any coverage of material happens outside of class and all of your class period is uh, around problem solving and sticking to your guns. I often hear from faculty, well, yeah, I can see the utility of that and I want to do that, but my students are going to hate it and then my student evaluations are going to go down and what's going to happen then? And, and the, I, no, no, and no. <laughs> if you do this, carefully with support for your students. Your students will resist. By midterm, your students will be in disarray. By the end, when they're doing their student evaluations, they will be okay with it if you have explained it properly to them. Mm -hmm. There is a great 
kind of old article on that from the National Teaching and Learning Forum. This was by Gary Smith, and um, he wrote a, something called the First Day Questions for the Learner-Centered Classroom. And he was dealing with the problem of students saying, ack, I can't do this, and why aren't you teaching me? And, and he has a really neat way of getting students on board with the kind of flipping the classroom and problem solving that I'm talking about. The other thing that I would say is um, look at Michelson and Fink's team-based learning approach. Um, that once I started te teaching with team-based learning, I cannot go back because the most exciting things happen intellectually in my class than have ever happened in all my 20 years of experience in the classroom. Um, look at that book, get help doing it, and the caveat is don't do team-based learning piecemeal. The whole thing holds together and you have to kind of do it, the whole format, for it to work and make teams happen. If you want to do just a piece of it, take that, what we call 4S approach, the one that I talked about, the team task design with significant problems, same problems, specific choice, and simultaneous report. That's the sort of TBL light. <laughs> um, if you were really going to do TBL, don't leave out any pieces because it only works if you do it all. Otherwise, your teams turn back into groups and the role of decision-making and responsibility to their peers is lost. So that's my suggestion. For advanced people, TBL and flipping the classroom. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Back in episode 25, Dr. Christy Spencer talked about that very thing. She talked about that she was sort of sharing her own process of what she's learned and what works and what doesn't work. Specifically, the topic was making large classes interactive, but much of her advice applies to any size of class. In fact, I would say all of her advice applies, but she shared that, that she attempted to implement pieces of team-based learning and it did not work. <laughs> no, no. If you do it in just little pieces, it will not work. And there are a lot of disappointed faculty members out there who, who now say that TBL doesn't work. And I, fundamentally strongly disagree mm -hmm. it doesn't work if you don't do it right absolutely but man does it work if you really take all the parts together uh, and and it is it takes work to redo a class as a team-based learning class but it is exciting when you see the students engage well, this is the point in the show when we get to our recommendations. And as I mentioned to you, I'm going to pass mine over to you because this is so great. <laughs> You've got so many resources. And by the way, just speaking of which, it's teachinginhighered.com slash 37. What are your recommendations for us as we close out our time okay, together? I've, I've been reading two books which really talk not directly about what to do in the classroom, but they give us all the reasons we need for doing exactly what I've been talking about, about critical thinking, inverting the classroom and giving students experience problem solving. The first one is On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. He talks about how the brain works and how we are human and why the brain is a learning machine and how the brain looks forward and anticipates what's going to happen in the world experiences the wor world, it's never what we anticipate, reflects on that, and that is the learning, the reflection on what my experience has brought me, and then you bring a new framework to your next experience. This is a very teeny nutshell of what he talks about. He has some chapters that really get very deep into like how the neurons work. That's not the piece that's interesting to me. Uh, actually, it is interesting to me, but interesting for the purposes of critical thinking is what he says about how the brain slash mind accumulates knowledge about the world and learns. And related to this, 
also Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal is a wonderful, wonderful book. What she is writing about is video games and she's writing about, about gaming and why gaming is addictive and she's writing about why gaming is addictive in positive ways. Uh, how, why is it that people will get into a video game and just get lost in it and keep working and working and working and overcoming challenges? Her understanding of games as reaching the human needs of competence and accomplishment, of connectedness to one another, and of autonomy in learning are exactly what we're talking about when we're saying critical thinking in the classroom. And so if we can make our classrooms do what Jeff Hawkins says the brain wants to do and do what Jane McGonigal says games do, we would have real learning classrooms. They both sound wonderful. You're going to add even more to my to be read list. And I appreciate it. <laughs> and I also, <laughs> I also appreciate so much the time you're of all the guests I've had, you put so much preparation time in in advance. I know we spent some time on the phone. And I treasure that opportunity to get to chat with you a bit. And then also the just the resources that we're going to have on the show notes as far as links and the document you created with the taxonomy. I just really treasure that. And thank you for investing in the teaching in higher ed community and being today's guest. Well, this was a pleasure. And I wish all the people listening good luck in their development of critical thinking activities in their classroom. Thanks once again to Tina Reimers for joining me to talk about all these important topics about developing critical thinking. If you'd like to comment on today's episode, please go to teachinginhighered.com slash 36. And if you'd like to give feedback on the podcast in general, that's teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. I welcome you subscribing to our weekly update, which includes an article on teaching or productivity and also the show notes from all of these episodes. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.